Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. You will not die. This is the lie which the tempter told our first parents. There are no consequences. There are no wages to sin. God isn't watching or he doesn't care. He won't repay. Through this lie, sin entered into the world and death by sin. The seed of doubt was planted that God's bluffing. He won't follow through. There's no judgment to fear. Now, these seeds of doubt were planted in Malachi's day as well. The judgment project seemed to be going so badly from the people's perspective that Malachi describes their thoughts, as we considered in the previous episode going over verse 15. And now we call the insolent blessed. Surely those who do wickedness are built. Surely they test God and they get away. Again, in our last episode, we saw that there was this contrasting group, those who thought on God's name, and these are the ones who will be spared. But in our text for this episode, we will return to the fate of these insolent and evildoers who seem to escape, and we will get some pretty vivid imagery to emphasize the fact that, no, they shall not escape. There are wages to sin. Our text for the episode is Malachi 4, 1-3, and uh, actually that's the numbering system in our English translations. Uh, The Hebrew doesn't introduce a fourth chapter and actually has these three verses as chapter 3, verses 19-21. to Now, that may be useful to you if you pull out a commentary and you find that they don't talk about chapter 4 and their chapter 3 is a little bit longer. That observation also reinforces that this text is of a piece with what precedes. In fact, keep your eye out for the parallels with the previous section as I read the text. Notice that there's this twin description of the insolent and all who do wickedness, which recalls the discussion introduced in verse 15. There is a subtler tie-in with verse 3, since in the day which I act, uh, recalls 317, uh, says Yahweh Sabaoth, in the day which I act, or, or make. So, Malachi, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning as an oven, and all the insolent and all who do wickedness will be chaff, and the coming day will scorch them, says Yahweh Sabaoth, who will not leave for them a root or branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will arise, and healing will be in its wings. And you will go out and leap about as fattened bulls, and you will tread down the wicked because they will be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day which I act, says Yahweh Sabaoth. These verses return to the subject of the fate of the insolent and those who do wickedness. This former term uh, deserves a little bit of consideration. It occurs often in Psalms and is particularly apropos for those who fight against the defenseless. Uh, Sharbert, in his discussion of this Hebrew word, Zaid, in the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, describes it this way, quote, The conduct of the presumptuous, or I use the word insolent, is described as subversion and oppression, in Psalm 119.21 and later prophetic texts, he lists several, with Malachi 3 being among them. Finally, the Zedim are those who, like the wicked, transgress God's commandments and disregard the words of the prophets, presumptuous men who claim in their arrogance the ability to defy God himself. 
and then later, words based on the root Zaid are remarkably scarce in contexts that also mention pride, haughtiness, or the like. They occur more frequently in connection with malice, wickedness, in terms for oppression, or the like. The point is that the root does not suggest pride or haughtiness, which can be based on genuine superiority, even if it should not be a matter for boasting, but rather, for the most part, claims that are totally unjustified, the irrigation of rights to which one is not entitled, a refusal to recognize the limits set by God and the legal or moral order. In the language of earlier wisdom, men who act this way are subject to ridicule because the emptiness of their claims will be soon exposed and they will be disgraced, end quote. Now, I spend all that time to quote Charbert at length, not only because insolent is a potentially confusing word, but to try to communicate the thrust of this passage. There are those who oppress the defenseless, the defenseless righteous, and they think they can get away with it. If God is going to act in the coming day to set all things right, these sorts of people must be dealt with. They are the enemies of God's people. We can even think back to Genesis 3. Not only was the adversary wrong when he said, you will not die, but God then stepped in, pronouncing judgment. The serpent would crawl on his belly and eat dust. He and his seed would be trampled down by the woman's seed. So, in that text, we have a description of not only the continual conflict between good and evil as evil continues to strike, but the eventual victory over these oppressors, the insolent seed which denies God's standards, and more than that, eventually over these oppressors by the seed of the woman. Now, an exegesis of this fascinating and significant text is outside of our current purposes, but there are some really interesting parallels with our text for today, conceptually and theologically. It reminds us of the big theme running throughout Scripture of salvation and judgment. I think most of us gravitate towards the promises in Scripture about salvation. These are the kinds of concepts that pop up in our songs and our prayers and our devotions. But God's coming salvation is tied to the subject of judgment. God cares so much about the garden. He cares so much about Adam and Eve and about humanity that he just can't let the serpent and the serpent seed continue to exist. No, the battle must one day finally be over. This is the theme that comes up again and again. If Israel is to be saved, the Egyptians must drown in the sea. If Israel is going to live successfully in the land, the inhabitants must be completely driven out. If God's going to bring in his eschatological salvation, the wicked must be destroyed. This perspective helps us understand why, throughout so much scripture, not only do the authors describe coming judgment, but they actually rejoice in it. For example, Revelation 19, 1-4. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Returning to Malachi, we once again have this graphic fire imagery that also occurs in Revelation so vividly. The coming day is burning. It's like an oven. The word refers, the word oven that is, to a small cylindrical cooking device, typically made of clay, which was then placed over a fire and used to cook things like bread. 
and could be fueled by any number of things like animal dung or dry grass. The imagery here in Malachi 4 pictures the wicked as chaff or straw. We then get a slight shift in 1b where the people are like a tree so decimated that there is neither root or branch, which may be a reference to fathers and sons. The point is the same in all these images. The people will not survive and instead will be consumed. However, this burning day isn't bad for everyone. The imagery shifts again in verse 2, though it retains the stuff about being a day and heat. But for those who fear God's name, they can expect a sun to rise with healing. This description assumes, of course, that those who fear God's name have been injured or hurt. And we only have to look back to verse 1 to guess who the perpetrators might be. The same fire that consumed the wicked like an oven will be like a beautiful summer day for others. In fact, we read here of the sun of righteousness with healing in its wings. Throughout several ancient Near Eastern cultures, and in fact, even in Israel, we have this picture of the sun looking kind of like a bird with its rays like wings. And we can imagine it flying across the sky from one end to the other. Now, in some cultures, the sun was worshipped. And even Jeremiah and Ezekiel describe the people of Judah engaging in this idolatry. But there's no good reason to read syncretism into Malachi at this point anyway. In fact, in our text, God isn't compared to the sun. Instead, it's the coming day which corresponds to that image. Early Christian interpreters are fond of taking this as a messianic reference. In fact, I can't help but think of Charles Wesley's Hark the Herald Angels Sing when he writes about Christ as risen with healing in his wings. However, when it comes to the exegesis of Malachi, there's really just no support for this kind of a messianic reading. Later in the book of Luke, Zechariah prophesies concerning his son, that is John the Baptist, that his birth signals that the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, in verse 78. Some have said that this shows a messianic interpretation of Malachi 4. Yeah, I'm not persuaded. Uh, the reference to a sunrise could be a reference to several other scriptures. And even if it does point to Malachi chapter 4, it's far from clear that the sunrise visiting us means the Messiah is coming as opposed to the day of salvation in general is coming. The result of the coming day for those who fear the Lord will amount to healing, producing so much joy that they will be like fattened bulls playing around after having been locked up. Now, we shouldn't get distracted thinking about the symbolism of the pen or the field or asking questions like, uh, so what are they freed from and where are they going? Virhoff gets it right when he comments, quote, the point of the comparison is not the going out of the calves, but their expression of joy, end quote. It's interesting that the righteous are described as fattened bulls. Pedersen, in his commentary, writes, quote, if the calves have been fattened for slaughter, then there may also be the sense that they have escaped death, end quote. If the idea is there, not much attention is given to it, but still, uh, it could really be that there is, uh, that we're supposed to imagine someone awaiting death, but instead there's been intervention, salvation, and now the bulls slash people are free from their uh, slaughterers slash oppressors. So 4.1 turns toward these insolent and workers of wickedness to describe their destiny of being burnt up. 4.2 turns toward those who fear God's name, 
and the healing and joy that will be theirs. 4.3 looks at both groups with a fascinating combination of imagery. The wicked have been burnt up like chaff or straw, and now they are ashes. The Hebrew is actually the normal word for dust, but since we've had fire imagery in verse 1, the English translation ashes works well. And those righteous fattened calves, fattened bulls, as they do their victory dance in the open field, are trampling down the wicked. In fact, the wicked will be under the soles of your feet, we read. This is likely a reference to the practice of kings who would put their feet on the necks of enemies, the idea being complete victory. The wicked being under the feet of the righteous and turning into dust uh, also makes me wonder if Genesis 3 doesn't stand somewhere in Malachi's mind, though I haven't seen any other scholars uh, make that suggestion. But if so, we have a nice inclusio bracketing device to the Protestant canon uh, where it starts and ends with the destruction of the wicked by being driven into the dust. This may leave us feeling kind of uncomfortable and squeamish. It's one thing to acknowledge, perhaps reluctantly, that, you know, the Bible does describe the future punishment of the wicked, and it's kind of like that weird uncle that's in the family that, well, we have to acknowledge that he's there, and we have to invite him to Christmas, but nobody really likes to have him around. In the same way, yeah, the Bible does talk about the topic of uh, the retribution to the wicked, but we don't enjoy the subject. Uh, But to be faithful to the witness of Scripture, we've got to incorporate it into our doctrinal statements. But, you know, let me challenge that thinking. The overall feeling of this passage goes so far beyond that, doesn't it? Coming destruction is, in this text, a cause for celebration. Or again, we can think to Revelation 19. It's a reason to shout, hallelujah! This text does vividly depict the judgment with figurative language, but there aren't too many specifics about theological questions like eternal conscious punishment within the eternal state. It would be better to turn to other passages, which are more explicit in answering those kinds of questions. But this passage does confront us with our attitude towards judgment. Whatever it looks like, it is terrible and destructive and violent and consuming. How can we rejoice in a thing like that? We want to do justice to the Bible's complexity here. On the one hand, God himself doesn't rejoice in judgment, so neither should we. Ezekiel 33.11 puts it so clearly, As I live, declares Lord Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Repent, repent from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? From this perspective, God hates judgment. 2 Peter 3.9, God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Timothy 2.4, God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. God hates judgment so much that he sent his son to be the mediator for everyone. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the descriptions of coming judgment don't contradict verses like this. In fact, that's why they're there. God is announcing the coming judgment ahead of time because it's a warning. However, when a person insists on being insolent, that is, hard-heartedly rejecting the offer of pardon in life which God offers, so long as they persist in that rejection, the only part they can play in the coming plans of God is destruction. Not because God delights in it, 
but he does delight in saving his people. And that salvation must come through judgment, since for the righteous to dance in an open field, the wicked must be trampled. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.